Uh, the Pinkerton agents flew into a panic and order was only maintained when the senior officer of the Pinkertons threatened to shoot anybody who fled. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I know. Um, thank <laughs> Commissar Pinkerton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. Straight from Stalingrad. I was gonna say. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. <laughs> okay. Uh, we hope to keep our listeners, I mean, <laughs> we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? We have Ray Kroc and Henry Fuck. I mean, Frick. Ah, so. Henry dude. Frick. <laughs> That is actually his name. Oh, Henry Frick. <laughs> so, basically what we said instead of fuck when we were in grade school, right? Yeah. Frick. Frick. Ah, so, we have uh, two extremely successful businessmen, the American dream personified. Mm, something like that, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe we can learn something from them. After all, us millennials need to get our shit together, pull up our sleeves, and get our hands dirty. Nothing bad ever came from a little elbow grease. Um, come on, James, where's your gumption? Where's your spirit? Why? My grandfather always said, a man who has no stars in his eyes has no spirit. Where are the stars in your eyes, James? You know what? You're right. It's a push-push world, Aaron. Push and drive, drive and push. That's damn right. Us millennials could learn a thing or two from these incredibly successful and super not scummy businessmen. Because if there's anything I learned from my university, it's that being a business major and going into a uh, business is the only proper way for a man of resolve to spend his life. Yeah, everyone else who isn't in business is either a sucker or just plain lazy. I'm looking at you, art majors. Yeah, I'm looking at you, history majors. You're looking at a mirror, James. Well, yeah. But I need to see myself with the sucker that I am. Only then can I roll up my sleeves and apply the old elbow grease. That's the spirit! And there's that word again. Spirit! We must have spirit! Drive! Business is all that matters! And our families who we leave at home for weeks at a time, fatherless, leaderless, and listless? You know what? What? They can go fuck themselves! Mm. There's real men doing real business out there! The world is all about real man's business! Hard work! Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, clock in, straighten that tie. America is the greatest, and its spirit is infinite. All it takes is hard work and a dream. I went to New York City with nothing but 30 cents in my only pair of tattered shoes, uphill both ways in the snow and rain. I had three beans to eat a week, and you know what? I was grateful! I paid 10 cents an hour for selling egg beaters door to door, day in, day out, for 10 fucking years, sacrificing everything I had just to put food on the table. I saw my children exactly three times between the ages of 0 and 18, but a man's gotta do what a man's gotta do by George. And look where I am now! I own New York City! And let me tell you something, anyone could own New York City if they just knew how to work hard and weren't born in the last 20 years! I went to that city completely naked, and you know what? Everybody laughed, but they're not not laughing now. Nah. <laughs> oh, you almost made it. Oh. Now I'm at the top by George. Can 
Can we just go down to the history lab already? History? Lab? Those sound like lazy communist millennial buzzwords to me! They're- they're really not. All millennials are entitled liberal communists! This is how Germany fell! And our glorious Christian nation is next- Oh my god, just shut up already! The godless millennials are trying to destroy the America I love! The America made of picket fences, elbow grease, apple pie, little league, cigarette addiction, proxy wars, isolationism, and foreign interventionism! They want to give our jobs to the Irish and the Slavs! They want a new world order! They want to kill Pat Robertson! Okay, that's it. Jesus fuck, I think I just shot my dad. To the history lab! Two American men in America. One, an art-collecting, union-hating coal tycoon with a penchant for being an asshole. The other, a milkshake machine salesman and alleged founder of one of the largest companies in the world, Henry Frick and Ray Kroc. In the battle for the crown of greatest capitalist ever, only one can dominate and penetrate the market of American greed. You know, James, if I had to describe... The perfect smoothie for you. Okay. I'm imagining the main ingredient is the Communist Manifesto, mm. pureed gently with some sort of history book by some conspiracy theorist, mm -hmm. uh, and then like a gallon of coffee. Mm. Mm. Uh, you're pretty close. Oh, actually. wait, wait. And a pack of cigarettes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not too far off. Mm. Well, if I describe your perfect smoothie, a smoothie you wake up to every morning and just drink all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, you prepare the smoothie in a barrel. Oh. It's a lot. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in it is nothing but kale juice and cigarette packs. <laughs> That's it? Where's the uh, where's the booze, man? Mm, well, the booze comes later in the evening. You oh. gotta wash it down with the booze. Right, right, but right. Just the smoothie. The barrel-sized <laughs> smoothie. Kale juice and cigarette packs. See, I would have thought my favorite smoothie would be like shitty vodka mixed with shitty gin mixed with shitty rum. <laughs> That's your night smoothie. Your yeah. protein smoothie. My, my protein smoothie. Protein mm -hmm. shake. Take a multivitamin, everyone. It keeps you from dying as an alcoholic. <laughs> Lots of fun. <laughs> so, uh... <clears throat> Without further ado, I say we get into this because I'm really interested to find out what Henry Frick's all about. Mm, so, uh, mm -hmm. computer, please bring up Henry Frick and Ray Kroc. Affirmative, my lord. So, uh, um, James? Yes. What does Henry Frick look like? Henry thought. I'm gonna be doing that the whole time. <laughs> Henry Clay Frick is best known for being your classic late 1800s American industrialist. Nice. Just a rich asshole. Perfect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so what did he look like? Like Robert E. Lee had a baby with Santa Claus. Oh, this baby then grew up, got into industry, and slaughtered a bunch of union members. Oh, oh my god! I don't want to give it away, though. Okay. So forget that. Spoiler <laughs> spoiler away. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, tell me about Ray Kroc. What is he best known for? Well, Ray Kroc is best known for being the uh, founder of the McDonald's Corporation. Oh, oh but, wow. But uh, that's, uh, that, we'll see about that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, hmm. Ray Kroc looked like a car salesman with a drinking problem. Mm. Like that Southern Baptist grandpa you had uh, in the 90s who got remarried at 71 a month after his wife died. Oh, God. Too uh, real. I, I knew several of those. <laughs> <laughs> so they all wear those shitty brown suits and they're yeah, a little bit overweight yeah. and you know, there's stains under their white t-shirt or white <laughs> yeah. shirt. Uh, he also looks a little like Michael Keaton if you squint. Oh, okay. <laughs> hmm. 
So uh, I say we just move right into Henry Frick's early life. Okay. And take it the frick away, James. I will. Frick you. <laughs> Henry Clay Frick was born in the good year of 1849 in West Overton, Pennsylvania. Wait, wait, wait. Not East Overton? No. Is there West. an East Overton? Perhaps. <laughs> Does that mean there's a Southeast Overton? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know much about directions. Would North Overton be like like a bit of a like double North? Because it's Overton and mm. it's North. See, these are the questions these, we need to be yeah, asking yeah, ourselves. These are the questions. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. He's in the West one, though. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we don't really have much on his early life. He went to college for a year, but then dropped out because he had other aspirations in life. Like buying a beehive oven and getting into coke. Uh, what? Mm-hmm. Yep. At the age of 21, Frick, two of his cousins, and a good friend all got together and started the Frick Coke Company. Oh. They bought a beehive oven and made coke. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not following that. Yeah, uh... <laughs> I had to look into this description myself. Uh, so Coke is not what you're thinking. I'm not talking about lesser Pepsi or old booger sugar. <laughs> That's a phrase? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I heard it sugar. once. <laughs> I heard it and I fell in love. <laughs> no, I'm talking about Coke as in the solid, carbonaceous, low-ash, low-sulfur fuel that is derived from coal. Oh. It's basically super coal. Ooh, super coal. <laughs> yeah. But to make it, you gotta heat coal up, so that is why Frick and his friends bought the beehive oven. Mm. So Frick and his pals are making super coal in a beehive oven, and he makes the claim that he is going to be a millionaire by the age of 30. Oh! And spoiler alert, he becomes a millionaire. Oh! Yeah, oh. so to all you liberal arts kids who dropped out of college after your sophomore year, buy a beehive oven. It will make you a millionaire. Uh, buy a beehive oven and apply liberal amounts of elbow crease. Or should I say conservative amounts of elbow crease? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. hey, why don't we roll right over into Ray Kroc's early life? Yes. Yes. The Kroc Man was born in 1902 in Illinois, which oh. is just too bad. Oh. <laughs> but uh, Kroc's family was wealthy, apparently, and his dad uh, was in the land appraisal business or mm. something like that. Something with land, uh, which is apparently where all the money is. Um, Praise the land and get rich. <laughs> there's not much about Ray Kroc's childhood, though, um, but it is said he was good at the piano and mm. was an entrepreneur from the start. Apparently, he ran a lemonade stand and worked at a soda fountain for most of his childhood, oh. which I believe wow. is what everybody did in that era. Every yes. kid worked at a soda fountain or mm. a pharmacy. Very true. Mr. Gower or whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, So anyway, World War One, and uh. he's 15. He mm. lies about his age, claiming he's 18, and joins the Red Cross to work as an ambulance driver. See, I, I gotta point out, that happens in so many stories of boys lying about their age, getting into the military. Like, it doesn't strike me that that would work well, but... but it did. Because when I was 15, I looked like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Just this fat, pudgy kid. Oh, I guess they... Uh, who knows? It, it works, apparently. I, I'm sure I could get into it at 30, because I'm always going to look like a baby. Oh, that is true. <laughs> but anyway, when he was working as an ambulance driver, he actually met Walt Disney. What? And uh, possibly Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> what the uh, fuck? The former of which he developed a professional relationship with in his later times. Okay. And I'm actually not going to cover that story, but he tried to get a McDonald's open in Disney World. Wow. But apparently Walt Disney wanted him to raise the price of French fries to like 15 cents from 10 cents. How and Ray, dirty. being the hero he was, said, I will not gouge my customers. Americans need their french fries. That's right. At 10 cents. <laughs> oh, the good old days. So, uh, after the war, Croc returned to a country sinking into the Great Depression. Mm. That country? Albert Einstein. No, I'm just what? <laughs> Never mind. What does that mean? <laughs> that country was the United States. Uh, but Croc would not be stopped by no depression, because he has all kinds of elbow grease. Mm -hmm. uh, he immediately begins trying all kinds of different careers, including working as a pianist, a music director, and a real estate salesman. Wow. 
Yeah, he also tried his hand at door-to-door sales, selling all kinds of different shit, like paper cups, cots, and all, <laughs> seriously, all kinds of other stuff. Um, but he did find a lot of success selling milkshake mixers with a company called Prince Castle mm. Multimixer. And yeah. their thing was they had, like, a milkshake mixer that could mix four or five milkshakes all at once. You know what? Nothing reminds me of the Great Depression like a good milkshake. Mm. Yeah, drink that vanilla down. Mmm, tastes like poverty. Mm. Yep. Anyway, this went on until the 1940s, uh, and this is when Ray got his big break when he sold a whole bunch of multi-mixers to this little burger place in San Bernardino called McDonald's. Whoa. Yeah. Let's just leave things right there for now. There it is. Yeah, but I think we're going to take a little break because apparently there's a lot about Henry Frick uh, because you've been raving about it. Uh, uh, Get ready, audience. Henry Frick is freaking amazing. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to get fricked up. We need to stop. (laughs) I am cutting it right now. And we are back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Ray Kroc's early life. But I think we're going to move right into Henry Frick's early life before we get to any more Ray Kroc. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us about uh, Henry Frick's adult life, James. Prepare yourself. I am prepared. Okay. So we left uh, Frick making super coal with his pals in a beehive oven. And things went really, really well, really, really fast for Frick. Uh, Frick was given a huge loan from his lifelong friend, Andrew Malone, Mellon or something like that, (laughs) uh, who who is also a super successful classic American industrialist. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, he's got a whole page on himself. Um, anyway, Frick takes this loan, buys out his cousins and friends' share of the Frick Coal Company, and is now the sole ruler of this little industry. <laughs> he renamed the company the H.C. Frick and Company, and it grew extremely fast. He's the H.C. Frick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was really successful, though. By 1880, Frick's company had over a thousand workers and controlled over 80% of the coal output in Pennsylvania. That is crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1881, Frick married a woman named Adelaide, and the two went on their honeymoon to New York City. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> when oh, no. Adelaide becomes a mom, does she become Marmalade? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'm just going to let that sink in. <laughs> that is... That is your creation. I know. That sentence is your creation. Marmalade! <laughs> yes! Fuck you. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Sorry. So they go on their honeymoon, honeymoon to New York City. And even on his honeymoon, Frick was looking to make sweet love to the marketplace. Oh. Mm, yeah. He met the famous Andrew Carnegie, who is basically a steel industry god. Yes. Mm-hmm. The two men soon joined their companies in a partnership. Frick supplied Carnegie's steel industry with Coke, Supercoal, mm. and in return, Frick made chair- uh, Frick was made chairman of Carnegie's company. Okay. Uh, but the two men were not exactly friends. Carnegie made many attempts to force Frick out of the circle by basically telling him that the company was not going anywhere and it was probably time for Frick to happily retire. Oh! Uh, this didn't work. So Frick continued to work with Carnegie despite Carnegie's discontent with the situation. Uh, now, this is where the story gets good. Okay. So, Aaron, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What would you do if you had several million dollars? Uh, buy several thousand camels. What even is this question? Um, okay. Uh, well, that's kind of what Henry Frick did, more or less. <laughs> he and a bunch of his successful businessmen, friend assholes, all got together and built their own private resort. With camels! Mm, kind of. Uh, okay. No. <laughs> they dubbed it the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, and it was located high in the hills above the town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Which is not Jonestown. No. No, no. no. <laughs> Johnstown. Johnstown. Now, on this property was the South Fork Dam that regulated the flow of the little Conamog, Conamog, Conamage River. Conamo. Conamo? Conamo? 
Something like that. <laughs> uh, at the time, this dam was the largest earthen dam in all of the world. <laughs> okay. To improve their resort, Frick and his businessmen friends put filters in the dam that prevented fish from passing through so that they would have more fish to catch in the reservoir above the dam. Uh, okay. Then they shortened the height of the dam so that they could install a road on top of it. Well, that's a lot of alterations. Mm -hmm. uh. Now, quite a few people were concerned about the structural integrity of the dam. Ah. Engi <laughs> yeah. Engineers were sent to inspect it and they came back with advice about strengthening the dam, but Frick and his business friends didn't reinforce the dam. So they didn't give a damn. Frick didn't give a damn. And neither a fuck nor a damn was given. <laughs> nor a Frick. Nor, nor a Frick. <laughs> so you can pretty much see where this is going. Uh, yes. And the story would be kind of funny if it didn't end so terribly tragic. Oh. So in 1889, Pennsylvania received an unusually high amount of snow. Oh no. Yep. In the spring, the snow melted, of course, and the dam could not support the weight of the water. Oh no. In addition, the filters that had been installed in the dam to keep fish from passing through caught all sorts of random debris and basically prevented all water from passing Who through. Who could have foreseen that? <laughs> yeah. uh, the dam burst on May 31st, 1889. Oh. What resulted was 14.55 million cubic meters of water wow. passing through at a flow rate that was equal to the rate of the Mississippi River. Wow. Yeah. The town of Jones Johnstown stood, not Jonestown. Not Jonestown. <laughs> the town of Johnstown stood twenty miles below the dam and it was just entirely demolished by the flood. Oh god. This catastrophe is known as the Johnstown flood. It caused $17 million in damage and killed 2,209 people. Whoa. Yeah. He so, destroyed an entire town because he wanted more fish. Yeah, exactly. Well, he and his buddies. Oh. So yeah, their carelessness just killed over two thousand people. And any lawsuits around this? Uh, yeah. You, okay, I'll get sure to that in a second. So, oh, my God. As soon as word of the flood reached Frick and his friends about the flood, they reacted instantly. They formed the Pittsburgh Relief Committee, which helped give relief to the flood victims, and they also agreed to never speak of the flood publicly. What? Thus ensuring that they could never take the blame for it. Oh. Yeah. So, as can be expected, many of the civilians who survived the flood sued Frick and his friends, but their strategy of not taking any of the blame paid off, and none of the lawsuits Of won. course they didn't. Yeah. So, kind of an asshole. Yep. Mm. Now, if you don't already think that Henry Frick is a royal asshole, this next story should win you over. Oh! Are you oh. ready for this? No. No, okay. he just you killed 2,000 people. I'm sorry. Just wait. This okay. story is ridiculous. Um, okay. In 1892, there was a labor strike at one of the Carnegie Steel Company factories in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Now, this factory was on the, oh, all these Pennsylvania rivers, Monongahela River, and it was basically the livelihood of the small town. There had always been strife between Carnegie and the worker unions, but Carnegie actually viewed unions quite favorably, surprisingly. That is surprising. Yeah, he publicly supported them and always said that no steel mill still steel mill was ever worth a drop of blood. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good on principle, really. Yeah, I guess. Mm. Uh, Frick believed differently. Uh, of course he did. <laughs> Frick hated unions and everything they stood for. And of course he did. Yes. Now, remember that Frick is a chairman on Carnegie's company, so when the workers of the Homestead factory quit work, surrounded the factory, and went on strike, Carnegie reluctantly appointed Frick to deal with the strike. Oh, no. This was a mistake. Oh, of course it was. Uh, so Frick made the factory into what the strikers called Frick Fort. <laughs> That's made up. You made that up. No, I did not. Oh my god. <laughs> no, none of this is made up. It is the most ridiculous story. Frickford. Frickford. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, he had security forces lock all of the workers out of the factory, refused to bargain with them, surrounded the factory with high fences topped with barbed wire, erected sniper towers with floodlights, what? and put high-pressure water cannons at every entrance. Snipers? That can't be legal. Well... Well, it was I don't know. 1800s, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he put water cannons at every entrance, and some of these water cannons were designed to fire out boiling water. Uh, of course they were. Mm -hmm. Sounds like H.H. Holmes. Yeah, me. this is bad. <laughs> it is bad. Um, the union workers responded to these actions by basically laying siege to the factory. Damn. Remember that the entire town is basically made up of these workers and their families. So the town inhabitants organize themselves and start fortifying their town. Wow. They start patrolling the river with boats, organize their into military squadrons, basically, make picket lines and wall defenses all throughout the town, begin a 24-hour town guard shift, and kick any strangers out of the town if they could not give a good reason to be there. Wow. Yep. Holy shit. <laughs> this is gonna get good. Or bad. Uh oh. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Oh, God. Uh, in addition, outside news reporters were allowed into the town to report on the situation, but were marked with a special badge and escorted out of the town if they portrayed the strikers in a negative light. Hmm. So yeah, this is just a giant clusterfuck, and it only gets worse. Uh, this is like, this is like, uh, the pot's about to boil. I yes, <laughs> exactly. Um... Uh, Henry Frick decided that instead of bargaining with the strikers, he had to squash them militarily. Of course! Mm -hmm. Yep. So he hired 300 security detectives from the Pinkerton Private Security Guard oh, and Detective no. Agency, armed them with Winchester rifles, and then put them on two armored barges. Holy shit. The plan was to sail the barges up the Mon Monongahela River, reinforce the Frick Fort factory that was situated <laughs> on the river, and then disperse, disperse the strikers <laughs> with lethal force Sorry, it's necessary. these names. It's I know. Henry Frick hires Pinkerton to defend <laughs> Frick <laughs> Fort on the Mon Monongahela, oh, Monongahela River. So good. Oh my god. Yeah. So meanwhile, the strikers learned that the 300 Pinkerton soldiers were on their way, so they built up defenses on the river and gathered weapons of their own. In the middle of the night of July 6th, 1892, the Pinkerton soldiers got on their barges and began the assault. Oh, uh, <laughs> today we embark on a great crusade. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, the strikers sent a barge of their own to meet them on the river. Oh, it's going to be a ship battle! It is. Uh, it doesn't last too long. Oh. The two sides exchanged a few shots before the strikers retreated to shore and uh, sounded the alarm. Ah. Uh. <laughs> At 4 a.m. in the morning, the Pinkerton landed their crafts on the shore outside of the factory and charged up at the defending strikers That seems like a beach. bad idea. It's like a D-Day almost. Wow. Yeah, uh, details conflict as to who fired the first shot, but what matters is that shots were fired. Two Pinkerton agents were killed and 11 were wounded, two strikers were killed and another 12 were wounded. Wow. The Pinkerton's assault was stopped though, and so they retreated back to their armored barges, which they- where they fortified themselves and fired on anybody who approached. This- this sounds like a flawlessly executed plan, yeah. gotta say. <laughs> it reminds me of the ATF and uh, David Koresh. Yeah, it, it's starting <laughs> to sound a little Koreshy, yeah, isn't it? Uh, uh, it only gets more Koreshy, by oh, the way. Oh no. Now, while this battle was raging, the families of many of the steelworkers got together, broke through the barbed wire fences surrounding the factory, and stormed in. The crowd started throwing rocks at the security guys inside the factory, but, are, but were eventually restrained by the strike leaders, thankfully. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Back on the shore, the strikers quickly built up uh, fortica fortifications and began firing on the Pinkerton agents in their fortified boats. These strikers even had a brass cannon that they used to try and sink the barges. They had a cannon? Yeah, it was probably like a Civil War era cannon. Oh my god! Yeah. 
Meanwhile, get this, hundreds of women, the wives and daughters of the strikers, gathered near the battle and all chanted in unison, KILL THE PINKERTONS! KILL THE PINKERTONS! There's like, that just doesn't sound thr- I mean, uh, it's like saying, KILL THE TELETUBBIES! Yeah, it does. <laughs> I know, but if you heard hundreds of angry women, uh, it doesn't matter what they're saying, that'd be, that'd be a little scary. Yeah, well, it would be. Yeah. Also, meanwhile, steelworkers all over throughout the region began hearing about what they viewed as the heroic stand of the Homestead Factory steelworkers. So, steelworkers all around Pittsburgh began to arm themselves and travel to the town of Homestead in order to join the Oh strike. my god, this is just escalating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, at 8 a.m. the next morning, the Pinkerton agents attempted another assault. They were met with fire from the strikers, and so they fired back. Four strikers were killed, and men were wounded on both sides. Wow. The assault was repulsed again, and the Pinkertons retreated to their barges. I'm starting to detect a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was at this time that dozens of the Pinkerton soldiers refused to fight any longer, and, may, and many attempted to jump into the river to swim away. Wow. The older officers were able to control them and prevent them from abandoning the cause, but only barely. I'm starting to wonder if this is becoming like a lot more like Waco where um, they everyone was kind of running out of bullets at this point. So they're like, oh, I guess I'll just jump in the river. Yeah. Just float away. <laughs> well, and I mean, the Pinkertons are basically just glorified mercenaries. Yeah. They don't want to die for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a tugboat attempted to rescue the two Pinkerton barges that were marooned on the shore, but gunfire from the strikers scared it off. At this point, there are about 300 armed strikers surrounding the Pinkerton barges and constantly barraging them with fire. Wow. Mm -hmm. The strikers then went on the offensive. They got a raft, loaded it with oil-soaked timber, lit it on fire, and pushed it towards the Pinkerton ships. Oh! Uh, the Pinkerton agents flew into a panic, and order was only maintained when the senior officer of the Pinkertons threatened to shoot anybody who fled. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I know. Um, thank <laughs> Commissar Pinkerton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Straight from Stalingrad. I was gonna say. Uh, thankfully for the Pinkerton agents, though, the barge burnt itself out before it got to their boats. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. You're like, everyone's through. Oh god, it's coming, it's coming! <laughs> wait, 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 hold, yeah. calm down. It's just this smoldering wreckage just like bumps this. next to it. <laughs> Clunk. like an egg crate just bounces off the side. Yeah. So uh, then what happened? Uh, next, the strikers loaded a railroad flat car with drums of oil lit on fire and pushed the train car down the tracks, which were aimed towards where the Pinkertons had landed. So these, like, essentially suicide oh. drone bombs? Yeah. Did this one work? Well, the flaming train car went careening down the tracks, but ground to a stop at the water's edge and burnt itself. (laughs) (laughs) Then the strikers lit dynamite sticks and threw them at the barges. Only one stick managed to hit the target, though, and it caused minimal damage and didn't hurt anybody of... Anybody of... It didn't hurt anyone of the Pinkerton agents. (laughs) See, they should have learned a lesson. They should have just gotten rocket-propelled grenades. That would have done it. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Next, the strikers poured oil on the river and lit it on fire in an attempt to light the barges on fire. They really want to burn these guys. I know, they are ruthless. (laughs) Wow. This didn't work either, though, because the oil wouldn't light for some reason. That's too bad. Now, while this is all going on, Henry Frick is safe in Pittsburgh. (laughs) Sitting by a fire with a white cat. Yep. Yes, let them fight among themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the leaders of the Union behind the homestead were kind of terrified because they had lost control of the mob utterly. They, I mean, 
they were fucked. <laughs> so they sent a diplomat to Frick in order to work out some kind of armistice and agreement, but Frick refused to even meet with the Union representatives. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Now that's a prick move. Yeah. Uh, you see, Frick knew that the more chaotic this whole situation would become, the more likely it would be for Pennsylvania Governor Robert Pattison to rally the state militia and drive off the st strikers. Yeah, I was kind of thinking that. Like... It, I mean, you've got it, a battle on yeah, your hands. Yeah, you have, like, a kind of a war going <laughs> yeah. on. Oh. Come on, Robert Pattinson. Yeah. Not, not Pattinson. <laughs> hey, they should make a movie about this and hire Robert I, Pattinson <laughs> to play Robert Pattinson. Yeah, this needs to be a movie. <laughs> uh, but the governor was very reluctant about calling up the militia on his own people for obvious reasons. Oh, yes. Uh, the governor ordered the local sheriff to defuse the situation, but the sheriff responded that that would be suicide because there were over 5,000 strikers in this heavily defended town, and many of them were armed. Wow. Hearing this, Patterson reluctantly began assembling the Pennsylvania militia. Oh dear god, mm. this is just gonna get worse. Back at the Battle of Homestead, which is what it's often called. Wow. <laughs> 5,000 men, many of them armed, arrived in Homestead and reinforced the strikers. So there's over 10,000 of these guys armed. <laughs> wow. Uh, these men were all from various types of work and came from all over Pennsylvania. They, they saw it like as an Alamo, kind of, against wow. these industries. Well, this actually, yeah, this sounds like a story that was made up, but my I god. Know. Wow. Uh, many of the striker leaders still in Homestead called for the mob to make a truce with the Pinkerton soldiers, but the mob refused and began shelling the Pinkerton vessels with leftover fireworks <laughs> from the recent 4th of July celebration. Uh, for some two reason, days I don't earlier. feel like that would work nowadays, I <laughs> but I also feel like back in the 1800s, their fireworks were like literally just gawkers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, finally, one of the strikers, a man named Hugh O'Donnell. Hugh? Hugh! Come on! Hugh O'Donnell. Hugh. I've been reading too much. <laughs> Hugh O'Donnell spoke to the crowd and got them to agree that if the Pinkertons surrendered and were all charged with murder, Whoa. that the crowd would agree to not hurt them. Yeah, remember, a few a few strikers have been killed at this point, right, so right. everyone hates the Pinkerton soldiers. So the crowd shouted their approval to this agreement, and it was presented to the besieged Pinkertons. The Pinkertons were more than ready to surrender, and so they, they disembarked their barges at five in the morning. Whoa. They were promised by the leaders of the strike that if they disarmed and surrendered, they would be marched out of the city. I don't believe that. Things did not go smoothly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the strikers formed a gauntlet for the Pinkertons to pass oh, through. No. As the unarmed Pinkertons were marched through the gauntlet, they were attacked by the angry mob. Men and women in the mob threw stones at the Pinkertons, spat on them, and even started beating them with clubs. Wow. Several of the Pinkerton agents were clubbed into unconsciousness. But nobody died? Nobody died at this point, That's no. surprising. Uh, yeah, thank goodness. The crowd then ransacked the barges and lit them on fire. Uh, the Pinkerton agents made it to Pittsburgh, and none of them were charged with murder because the real leaders behind the Union strike just wanted to defuse this whole fucking situation, mm. and they were willing to concede pretty much anything at this point. Well, that would be a relief. You get your ass beat as you're coming off your flaming barge, and you're yeah. like, oh god, I'm gonna be charged with murder, and then it doesn't happen. I think you'd feel pretty good. Uh, true. <laughs> yeah. Finally, on July 12th, 8,000 Pennsylvania militia soldiers made it to the town of Homestead where they totally surprised the strikers. Mm. Several of the members of the strike attempted to make some sort of agreement with the militia, but the commander ordered nothing but complete surrender. Well, yeah. <laughs> the strikers had no choice but to surrender. Uh, they turned over their arms and the town was put under martial law. Henry Frick immediately reopened the steel factory... Uh, uh 
and punished the workers with reduced wages. Oh. And he threatened that if any of them even talked about striking again, they would be evicted from their homes. Oh. Thus, the epic of the homestead battle comes to an end. Wow. Through the fighting, 10 men had been killed and over 70 had been wounded. Thus, it is often called the Homestead Massacre. Now, that's kind of interesting. I've actually heard that. Yeah. The Homestead Massacre, not the Battle I've of Homestead. I've heard of it too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we are not done with Henry Frick. Of course not. <laughs> there is one more great story to tell. Oh. So Henry Frick continued to rule his industrial empire, but not surprisingly, many of his workers absolutely hated him for how he dealt with no. the whole <laughs> massacre. <laughs> yeah. An anarchist named Alexander Berkman decided that Frick needed to die. Oh. Mm-hmm. So on July 23rd, 1892, Berkman entered Frick's private office in Pittsburgh. Uh, Berkman was armed with a revolver and a sharpened steel file. When Berkman entered the office, Frick was having a meeting with the Carnegie Steel Vice President John Leishman. Both men saw Berkman enter with the weapons, but were not fast enough. Berkman fired a bullet into Frick at almost point-blank range. Oh my god! <laughs> the bullet hit Frick in the left earlobe, went through his neck, and then lodged in his back. Oh. Frick was thrown to the ground by the shot, and then Berkman shot him again. This time, the bullet went right through his neck and caused Frick to start gushing Jesus blood. Jesus Christ! Berkman attempted to shoot Frick a third time, but by this time, uh, Leishman was able to grab Berkman's arm and prevented him from firing. Then Frick got up. What, uh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. He's Rasputin. He is. <laughs> <laughs> Frick gets up after being shot twice in the neck and proceeds to tackle Berkman and starts punching wow. him. Wow. Berkman responds by pulling out his sharpened steel and stabs Frick four times in the leg. Oh. By this time, employees outside of the office rushed in and restrained Berkman. Berkman. He was given 22 years in prison for attempted murder. Amazingly, Frick survived the attack, the and a week later, he was fully recovered and running his industry again. Oh my god, he's a he's uh, a monster. He is, <laughs> is otherworldly. The steel factory is just replacing, <laughs> is just building replacement parts he's for his... just a cyborg yeah. terminator. <laughs> Uh, he did, uh, punish workers, though, because he thought they were behind this assassination attempt. Oh, God. More than 2,500 workers lost their jobs, and thousand more had their wages halved. Okay, And so. that about does it for Henry Frick's adult life. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's be honest here. Um, <laughs> the unions aren't doing much if you can just have their right. wages. <laughs> um... Yeah. But also, that's why we need unions. Exactly. <laughs> Henry Frick is why we have unions, like, everybody. It's just a perfect example of how both sides are, like, awful. <laughs> yeah. He's just doing terrible things to the workers, and the unions can't control their own people, and their people start shooting, and ugh. It's just a clusterfuck. Yeah, it is a clusterfuck. Looks very different today, but back then it was like all-out war between the employer and the employee. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my god. Uh... Anyway, oh, I need a break. We we need a break. I that was water. a lot. My oh. God. Well, when we come back, oh. oh God. When we come back, we'll be talking about Ray Kroc's adult life, which involves a lot less murder, good, <laughs> a lot less gunfighting. Oh. Um, but right. get ready, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. Anyway, we'll be back. We'll be back. And we are back to We Talk About Dead People, and when we left off, we had just heard a really terrible story about a guy named Henry Frick. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was he was quite the Frick, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's putting uh, it lightly. So let's talk about Ray Kroc, who was just a crocodile. Okay. <laughs> Is that factual? So, Ray Kroc's adult life. Mm. Uh, so when we left Kroc, he was in San Bernardino, California, visiting this little restaurant called McDonald's. Hmm. 
Now, the reason he was there was pretty simple. He sold like eight multi-mixers to this place, which means they needed to simultaneously produce something like 30 or 40 milkshakes at a time. Wow. Now, this got Croc's attention, because any place that needed to produce that many milkshakes at a time was clearly doing really, really well. Sure. So, Ray does what just any of us would do. He drives from Oak Park, Illinois to San Bernardino, California, just to check this place out. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> when he gets there, he discovers a restaurant... Run like no other. Meals are ready almost instantly. Hmm. There are no plates, no silverware, just paper wrappers. There's no wait staff. Customers go right up to the window and to order and receive their food right there. Hmm. Uh, now remember, this flies in the face of the current model of fast food, which is the drive-in. Hmm. You go in, park your car, a waiter or waitress roller skates up to your car, takes your order, and you wait for your food to be brought to you. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, drive-ins uh, at the time tended to be like little nasty cesspools of teenage angst. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> greasers, greasers, and other shady types often made the, their chill-out areas. Mm. Cigarettes were sold on site. Oh, gosh. So the places <laughs> tended to be kind of trashy. Compared to McDonald's, however, Croc noticed that there were no greasers. Hmm. The place was functioning something like a community center. Whole families were coming to eat, not just teenagers and single people who didn't feel like cooking that day. <laughs> and the place was spotless. There were plenty of trash receptacles, and customers got rid of it themselves rather than waiting for staff to get rid of the trash. Oh, wow. Yeah. So while Croc was visiting, he managed to get a tour of the restaurant with the owners, a pair of brothers called Richard and Maurice McDonald. Ah, there's that name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Croc immediately realized that the McDonald's kitchen was one of the best he had ever seen. It was perfectly engineered for efficiency, had a level, level of automation unseen at the time, uh, at that time in a kitchen and had very strict sanitation and cleanliness policies. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So the McDonald's brothers had spent untold hours developing the perfect system for their fast food restaurant. <laughs> um, it was like a dance. Like everybody, they would they would get trays of hamburgers yeah. and they would, there were like two people, one would have a tray of hamburgers that was ready and then one would have an empty tray and they would stand back to back and they huh. would swivel. What? And then they would put that on the serving area where they would pack it away and then they'd fill up the next tray and then he would swivel again. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> they had a really strong vision for this restaurant, uh, a restaurant that produced quality food quickly and was family friendly. Mm -hmm. They didn't cut corners and didn't work with low grade products. They just worked really efficiently. Um, so Croc, again, was super impressed. So he proposed that the McDonald's brothers start up a franchise. Um, they'd already tried it. It didn't work out because they couldn't maintain quality. Okay. Yeah. Um, because they were trying to run everything from a great distance. Sounds like they need a Croc. <laughs> they need a croc. Um, to this, they agreed and drew up a contract, which Croc signed without hesitation. He became what was called a franchising agent for McDonald's and started a new thing called the McDonald's System, which later became the McDonald's Corporation. Croc immediately began opening new restaurants in the Midwest, particularly in Illinois. Uh, he invented a new model for the franchise, throwing out the old territorial models, where franchises franchisees own several restaurants within a territory, and instead put in place an individual restaurant model. This worked very well for several reasons. One, Croc was obsessed with quality standards at McDonald's and often personally visited restaurants to check up on them. Wow. And having individual franchises meant, meant that Croc could hold people personally accountable for the state of their particular restaurant. I'll give it to the guy. He's a hard worker. Yeah, <laughs> look at that elbow grease. Yeah. They yep. fry their fries in elbow grease. <laughs> um, now, in order to have more control over his franchisees, Croc decided to essentially franchise the land and not the restaurants. Okay. So basically, he allowed franchisees to own the restaurant as long as they respected the terms of the lease. This is sounding more and more feudal. Yeah, <laughs> or something like that. What it really means is that the franchisee's loca location fell below... Like, ugh. 
Sorry. What it really means is that if, if a franchisee's location fell below Ray's standards, he could cancel their lease and effectively kick them off the oh, property. Okay. Uh, so it's a pretty, pretty smart system uh, if you want to leash literally everyone you're in business yeah, with. It sounds like a monarch. <laughs> yeah. Um, with this model in Crocs Gumption, McDonald's opened its 100th restaurant in 1959. Hmm. At this time, the McDonald's brothers were starting to get pissed off. Why? Why? Well, in the contract they drew up at the beginning of this whole thing, Ray had signed on to an agreement that said the McDonald's brothers had to approve of everything Ray did with their uh, restaurant and family name. And he was super not doing that. Oh no. The McDonald's brothers got left out of most of the major decisions Croc was making in the Midwest. <laughs> they never approved of Croc's land leasing model or his single franchise model. <laughs> uh, they never even approved of any other restaurants besides Croc's first franchise. They sound like good guys. Oh yeah. Um... I mean, the, their story's amazing on its own. Mm, that's yeah, a, that's an amazing story. Um, but Croc just kept opening restaurants under the McDonald's name, mm. and the only way that they found out, the brothers, that is, the only way that they found out was when they got a letter from the McDonald's Corporation, uh. which I remind you, the McDonald's brother <laughs> brothers had literally nothing to do with. <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, basically saying that they were just another franchisee Whoa. of this monster corporation that had just popped up under their radar um, that they had nothing to do with. <laughs> And Even though their name, their name is on it. <laughs> uh, so Croc was basically cheating them out of all of this shit with you know that, that they're being done in their family name. Yeah. Um, so eventually they got lawyers involved to try to enforce the terms of their contract. But the fact is that Ray just had too much money at this point, and the brothers didn't stand a chance. Huh. So Croc pretty much forced them to let him buy them out for a million bucks a piece after taxes. Oh. Um, and there was this shady handshake deal where he said they'd get a percentage of the royalties from then on, which would, would amount to s several hundred million dollars. Okay. Um, but he didn't honor it, so... yeah, They pretty much lost the rights to their service system, their family name, and all the royalties. <laughs> uh, they should have been earning from the McDonald's Corporation because Croc had just ignored their contract until he had enough money to pay lawyers to help him avoid honoring the contract. Okay. Royal uh, asshole. <laughs> and and uh, the sad thing about it is, actually, they kept their restaurant open, it, just not as a McDonald's. They changed it to the Big M, and it stayed in business for only six years Oh, afterward. that's horrible. I know. Oh. Um, but after this, the rest is pretty much history. Ray kept running McDonald's until 1974 when he quit the business and uh, bought a baseball team called the San Diego Padres. <laughs> but they sucked. So oh. he eventually gave control of the team over to his son-in-law. He is quoted as saying the team was made up of the stupidest baseball players in the world. <laughs> he was watching a game and they were just completely fucking it up. Yeah. And so he gets on a PA system at the stadium and he goes, aren't these the stupidest players you've ever seen in your life? And everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> so that's when he gave the team wow. away. Um, a little personal info. Over his lifetime, Ray was married three times. Hmm. Uh, he was an alcoholic and had a lot of alcohol-related health problems. Hmm. Um, but by the time he was on his way to the River Styx, McDonald's had nearly 8,000 restaurants in 31 countries, which is just insane. Yeah. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And it's all thanks to Ray Kroc taking advantage of a pair of genius restaurant owners in California. Oh, those poor dudes. I know. Oh. There's actually a great movie that just came out about this. That's what the Michael Keaton joke was about. It's called The Founder and it's about this exact story. Oh, um, interesting. And it is so amazing to see Croc as a character go from this like, oh god, I'm selling milkshakes to just being a total bastard to these guys. Yeah. Um, it's also got, what, Nick Offerman in it? He huh. does a great job. Doesn't have a mustache though. Which is fine. 
So, uh, hey, I don't think we need to take a break. Nah. I think we just need to move over to Henry Frick's end and death mm -hmm. because I really want to see this guy just kick the bucket already. He does. He oh, does. Good. Yes. Uh, so Henry Frick has a big legacy as being a total dick businessman. Okay. Interestingly, <laughs> though, he is he was also a huge art collector. His collection is one of the largest collections of European art in America and can be seen today. Wow. He also gave millions of dollars to the building of public parks. Okay. It's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one time he and his wife booked tickets on the Titanic, but then canceled right before it set sail. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Damn you, fate! Uh, so, what happened? So, he died of a heart attack on December 2nd, 1919, only a few days before his 70th birthday. Oh. Yeah. He is buried in Pittsburgh. He didn't really have a huge legacy, per se, basically. Uh, except for destroying a town, literally having a war at a steel mill. Yeah. Well, it's not really remembered, though. That's the thing. Like, he did these horrible things, but... Eh, he hushed know. it all up. Yeah, I mean, like basically. That, like Johnstown, he was like, hey, don't tell anybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, basically, his art collection and opening some public parks is what he's best known for. Even though he's just a total dick to his workers. He's best known for being a total dick to his workers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's roll right back over to Ray Kroc's end in mm -hmm. death. And uh, like I said before, Ray had some serious health problems. Mm, no. Alcohol was a major one. In fact, his problems with alcohol partially inspired his opening of the Ronald McDonald House, oh, which, in case random. you don't know, is a charity that organizes research for children's health and other things of that nature. Hmm. Yep. But in 1980, Ray had a stroke. Yep. He was put in a rehab facility for his alcoholism and died four years later of heart failure. Quite the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. kind of deserved it. <sighs> well, that was all very fascinating. Fricksinating. Ah, I can't believe that just came out of your mouth. I am what I am. And that is a frickin' idiot. Shall we head to the frickin' surface? With all frickin' haste! What are you going to do for the rest of your day? I need to figure out how to cheat people out of their money and good ideas. <laughs> well, Ray Kroc wrote a book. I'm sure he did. What are you going to do? Disappoint my parents constantly. Well, I think it's time to bring this show to an end for today. Feel free to send all your hate mail to We Talk About Dead People podcast at gmail.com. We will read all of it and not along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash we talk about dead people. There is a link in the description box. Even as little as a dollar, as much as it costs to buy a politician, helps tremendously. Our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustrated. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sexy sounds of success play you out.